Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Lynn Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, July 18th, 2022. On the show today, news and surveys. Then in our main segment, Jim tells us how the boat ride at Epcot's Norway Pavilion went through a sudden name change after the attraction was built and ready to open. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that if astrology isn't true, then how are all Leos born in July and August? It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? And the week that we're looking at these amazing images from the web, you know, uh, you know, the 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 the, 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 the web, great, uh, James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah, yeah. It's just to talk about astrology. What's like? Oh, yes, the lion that's up there in the sky. It's like no. This is a moment we celebrate science, where we can actually. I mean, just have you seen these images? How crazy crisp they are. Yeah, they're they're fantastic. Yeah. If they'd only had these at my prom. <laughs> You, you could tell the acne from a mile away. From there we go. Scenes. There we go. That's a black head, white head. Oh, my God. Look at that. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you a true, a true story. I was once at a uh, gallery party with uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson oh, uh, in okay. New York City. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, you know, saying something. And I've and I sort of like known Neil mm-hmm. through a friend of a friend of a friend thing. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And Neil was talking about something, you know, just like small group, like him, me and a couple other people that we knew. Mm-hmm. together and i forget what he said but i was in my smart ass mood that i you know normally in mm-hmm. and i'm like well of course you'd say that neil you're a sagittarius and then he put me in a headlock true story <laughs> not making that up i i, I actually <laughs> enjoy hearing that good good actually actually happened there we go <laughs> all right that is killer all right jim let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at disneydish.bandcamp.com thanks to new subscribers rob hall craig heinz and amanda betton and long-time subscribers, Jennifer Smith-Stewart, Kiki Arias, and Matthew Truesdale. Jim, these are the folks coming up with new desserts for Epcot's Food and Wine Festival, which is now open. They say that this year will feature fan favorites, such as citrus, honey, and berry, plus unexpected flavors, such as WD-40, static electricity, and a savory ingredient they're only referring to as 50th anniversary monorail. True story. Ooh. Oh, I really hope that any of us who've been on the monorail recently with that wonderful rug bouquet. <laughs> I'd Would you describe quick. that as flora or fauna? Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> it's a rich, earthy tone, Len. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Do I say. There's a certain minerality in this scent. <laughs> there we go. Yes. <laughs> All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. All right, Jim, quick news. I'm speaking at IAPA this year, the uh, International Association of Amusement Parks and Attractions. Yeah, in Orlando, November 18th, 2022. does require tickets to get in. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the tickets are fairly expensive, so this is not a general public thing. But if you happen to be in the theme park industry and going to IAPA, my talk is at 9.30. It's on the intersection of uh, theme parks and academia. I think the uh, reason that... I'm speaking is that literally no one else wanted to do it. <laughs> it is a touch early. I mean, somebody's got to be the first one to think, but this is cool. This is this is really cool. Holy cow. Yeah, so if you're an academic and you study anything about uh, Disney or Disney theme parks, especially the theme park side, let me know because part of my talk is going to be on uh, awesome things that other people are doing and how to get in touch with them. So let me know. Cool, cool. Also, in other news, more character dining gym has returned to Walt Disney World or is returning starting in September uh, at the Magic Kingdom. The uh, Winnie the Pooh characters will come back 
to the Crystal Palace. I know a ton of people are looking forward to that. And also, I think, frankly, the people at the Crystal Palace are both the servers who are interested in the gratuities and the service, uh, and also the managers for ratings for the Crystal Palace. There were so many people who that was their dream gig. They, you know, that the, to work at that restaurant. Yeah. Which, uh, by the way, I mean, if if you you go back of house there, it's right up against the Jungle Cruise. It's mm-hmm. always not in the greatest shape, but it was a, a ridiculously well-paying gig. Oh yeah. And how long now? Since March of two thousand twenty. Yeah, it's been closed. Yeah, it'll be two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is great news. This is great news. I mean, I think uh, the other uh, thing that you pointed out, since uh, you know, we know that Crystal Palace is uh, right up against the Jungle Cruise, the fish is always fresh, and it does taste <laughs> like chicken. <laughs> other news over at the Polynesian, the Ohana Breakfast with Lilo and Stitch is coming back September 27th. Now, the interesting thing about that, Jim, is Disney almost launched this back in like April of this year, and they got within a week of launching it and then something, and not within a week, within like a few days, because I had Mm. heard from somebody who was in the loop, like on a Wednesday, that it was supposed to come out, uh, it was supposed to start again uh, earlier this year on a particular Sunday, and then it never happened. And so something must have happened at the last second for that. I don't know if it was like, you know, we don't need characters at breakfast, we need characters in the park type thing or what. But uh, anyway, this one's coming back September 27th, Mm -hmm. which is fabulous. Also, over at the Beach Club, the Cape May Cafe Breakfast with Minnie is coming mm-hmm. back on October 4th, 2022. So within uh, roughly two weeks, starting around September 20th, we should have three more character meals coming back, uh, two breakfasts mm-hmm. and a lunch and a dinner. That is great news. Our pal who keeps the, the index of the parks coming back. This is something that people consider an essential part of their Disney World vacation. So the fact that these three, three coming back, that's great. Yeah, it's so. fantastic. Also, Jim, I wanted to get your take on this. Um, uh, it's not really news. It's more of a rumor. But the rumor uh, going around this week is that Disneyland's People Mover might be coming back as part of a Tomorrowland redo. Have you heard this? I have been seeing the same things you're saying. And the People Mover at Disneyland closed down on April 21st, 1995 oh, to make room for the new, new Tomorrowland that opened in 98. And the thing of the new, new Tomorrowland is they put on the People Mover track the rocket rods. Okay. And the gimmick of the rocket rods was that it would take you on the route that previously had taken, I want to say, 15 minutes. People Mover Track in California is lengthy. It goes out over way behind the Autopia and then makes its way back into the station. And the thing was that the rocket rods would take you that same route in four minutes. Wow. Okay. It was a fun thrill ride, but again, it opened May 22nd, 1998. And then six weeks later, it suddenly shut down on July sixth was closed for five weeks while disney engineers walked the track and Mm -hmm. and eyeballed things and there were never any discussions as to public discussions about what was going on it then reopened on july 16th and then stayed open till september 25th 2000 and then land it suddenly shuts down and disneyland announces that the rocket rods will be closed till the spring of 2001 and okay. this is so work can be done on this previously a nice passive ride to the park now a thrill ride and it's only in on april 23rd of 2001 that the park announces the rocket rods will never reopen mm. and 
supposedly because the rocket rods had been put in quickly and mm -hmm. to be honest because they didn't have as much money as they wanted to have for the new new Tomorrowland at Disneyland and I think we've talked previously about how some of that is tied to test track at Epcot that mm -hmm. in fact I want to say GM was supposed to be the sponsor of Rocket Rods oh, because okay, okay. test track ran so far over schedule and had so many issues opening that GM effectively abandoned Rocket Rods and so they didn't bank the track they didn't do a lot of stuff that had originally been planned and supposedly one of the reasons that they shut down the, the attraction for just five weeks initially was they were noticing cracks along the supports of the people mover. Right, because there's a difference in the amount of force that's applied to a track that's when you're exactly talking the, about something like the people mover versus mm -hmm. a thrill ride, right? That's it, exactly. So yeah. what they did is they sort of rewrite the programming over these five weeks and slow down for this turn and slow down for that turn. Ah. Supposedly, the reason the attraction then shut down September 25th, 2000, was they did another inspection and noticed that it wasn't just a few supports at this point. It was dozens. Oh, yeah. And then it became unviable. Yeah. So then it was a notion of, okay, we'll shut it down. We'll repair all the supports. And then they looked at how much it was going to cost versus what the capacity of this thing was. And it oh, didn't yeah. have the greatest capacity. And so in the end, they walked away. And so understanding supposedly the damage that was done to the support network for the people movers yeah. by the rocket rods. I don't know if in a Bob Chapek version of the Disney company that they would be willing to spend that much money to make the necessary repairs to safely operate the people mover again in Anaheim. Right. So the, I mean, this concrete has been out in the elements now for 20 years, right? It had cracks yeah. back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It seems like that's a lot of capital for a ride that is basically going to be fan service to people who remember from 20 years ago, but not going to be something that moves the needle regarding getting new families from out of state to come to Disneyland or planet trip for it. That doesn't seem like a great use of money. Yeah. I'm kind of skeptical. Would love to see this rumor pan out, but it's yeah. just sort of like the investment to actually bring back a ride, which again right. has been closed since April 21st, 1995. We were coming up on, you know, what? The, the 27, 27 year? years? 20, oh my God, yes. I know, Jim, I, I, know. I, I often think that 2010 was last week as well. And I'm, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Just think about that. We have, we have listeners who are younger mm -hmm. than the closure <laughs> of the uh, people mover. That's amazing. That is a little scary. Wow, yeah. I feel old mm -hmm. now. All right, well, let's, uh, let's all uh, sip our Metamucil here and mm -hmm. let's get on to the surveys. Jim, our friend Bob Lee, Got an interesting Genie Plus survey after a recent trip to Disneyland. And I want to share with you some of the questions. We'll start off with the basics. Please rate your experience using the following services during your recent visit. Disney Genie Plus, and then in parentheses, paid access to premium features and multiple attractions via the lightning light. And Bob rated his experience with Genie Plus as excellent. The next question was, well, how would you rate the value for what you paid for Genie Plus? And on a scale from excellent to poor, Bob had given just okay. Of course, when you do that, uh, you get a follow-up question. And that follow-up question is, uh, why do you feel that the value for what you paid for Genie Plus was just okay? And this, is, uh, this question is interesting because I think it is a sample of all of the things that Disney has heard about Genie Plus in terms of problems. So one of them is, uh, I was unable to pre-plan and purchase Disney Genie Plus Lightning Lane attractions 
in advance. And Jim, I think, uh, and so Bob, check this box, but I'm thinking this is the box where people uh, are really saying to Disney, I liked FastPass Plus better. Mm, yeah, wrong. The uh, next one is I spent too much time checking on lightning lane availability on my phone during the day. That is also a super common complaint that we hear. Bob has checked mm-hmm. that box as well. The attraction I wanted to ride was not included in Genie Plus. And I think here, what Bob was referring to was Rise of the Resistance, which is, I believe, a lightning lane, uh, uh, individual lightning lane attraction. The other options that were available, the wait times were too long. Popular attractions sold out too early or too quickly. It costs too much. There wasn't anything else included beyond access to the lightning lane. I didn't get to ride enough attractions, and I didn't get to ride the attractions I was most excited about. So the next question is about uh, Genie, the trip planning app. It says, uh, how likely are you to use Disney Genie on a future visit? The answer is may or may not. And then how likely are you to purchase Genie Plus and or individual Lightning Lane on a future visit? Um, The last question that was interesting is, what were you not able to do that was important to your group when visiting Disneyland? And this is a, a text field where uh, Bob had written uh, Rise of the Resistance, Lion King, Alice in Wonderland, and the Main Street Electrical Parade. And I'm, I'm interested here because you know, what Bob wrote about Rise of the Resistance really fits into the Genie Plus thing. And I'm, I'm wondering how much mm-hmm. blowback do you think Disney is getting by essentially dividing Lightning Lane into two parts, uh, into the Genie Plus stuff and then to individual Lightning Lane? Like, would they be better off just charging $20 for a program that combined individual Lightning Lane and Genie Plus together. I wonder about that, because isn't that taking effectively two buckets of money and making it one? Right, but if um, if you can combine the buckets in such a way that the volume expands, then it doesn't matter, right? I mean, all Disney cares about is the money. They don't care about how it happens, right? This is true. So I wonder if that's it. I wonder if they're getting, if they're looking at questions like this and saying, would we be better off just having one one lightning lane purchase option. Hmm. It would also help um, with capacity issues, right? So when a ride goes down, they would have you know one or two more rides per park that they could use for Genie Plus. That's an excellent point. Not a bad idea. Yeah. I just am fascinated at the amount of survey work we're seeing about Genie. Oh, there's more coming up. <laughs> I'm glad you like it. There we go. I got a whole okay. other thing on this. So okay. our friend Andrew uh, got a survey about Genie and a Genie Plus, but not from Disney, from a company called Compass Rose. Compass Rose is actually owned by the Walt Disney Company. Ah, uh, that's what I thought. That's why it's called Compass Rose. I actually did a quick lookup of this. Uh, I, I couldn't tell from LinkedIn whether it was too, but I, that's what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. It's the outfit. It's one of their realty arms. You can find a story from 2019 where Disney buys 235 acres okay. over in Winter Park, and it's done through the Compass Rose Corporation. Right, and that makes sense because there are uh, Disney uses the Compass Rose logo a lot uh, for various things, so that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. So besides being a survey about Genie and Genie Plus, the first question mm-hmm. in the survey that enters in us was really interesting because it mm-hmm. says this, how will do you feel each of the following phrases describes Walt Disney World? And the phrase is, Walt Disney World is a brand I trust to do what is right. Strongly agree, agree, neither agree, disagree, disagree, and strongly disagree. Why do you think they're asking do what is right? 
Coming off of the don't say gay situation, the bumping heads with Governor DeSantis and that sort of thing, there is some talk, given that, that Disney has recently brought some new people in to handle public affairs and that sort of thing. Again, the notion of doing a course correction on how Disney handles its public affairs and stepping into places of public discourse. And I would sense with the new people who are working the public affairs side of the street right now, it's just taking the temperature of the room. What do you, if when I say the, the name Walt Disney World, what do you think? Mm. They're tired of the company being an easy punching bag, whether it's on Fox News or, or somebody looking to fundraise for their political run. And didn't we actually get a, get an email from Jillian about this very same thing? Or we did. So, um, so related to this question about you know Disney doing the right thing. Remember a couple episodes back, before I had gone on my cruise, we had talked on the show about a survey question that Disney had sent out asking whether any member of your household or yourself identified as a member of the LGBTQIA community. I mean, we thought that that was interesting because to your point about the this survey question about you know, Disney doing the right thing, Disney's trying to figure out whether their stance in Florida on this particular thing is something that is a net positive for them. And I sort of, I'll say two things. One, you shouldn't have to t take a survey to figure out whether something is right or wrong to do, right? It's not a, there are certain things that are right or wrong, regardless of public opinion. But the second thing is sort of, I understand it because they're a, a public corporation and perhaps they just want to be able to explain things to lawmakers better. I get that, right? So, um, but here's something interesting. So Jillian wrote it and Jillian is from Canada. And she said, a longtime fan of the show regarding the most recent Disney dish episode, perhaps it's just my Canadian cynicism of Americans. But given what's uh, been going on lately, I would absolutely not want to self-identify any members of my party or myself as part of the LGBTQ plus community, as Disney asks on their survey. I would not be comfortable giving a company with operations in Florida any sort of link between a person's name, address, and birthday and the possibility of being gay or trans. Uh, I'm not sure that if you saw this week after recent court decisions, a number of posts circulated on social media advising women to delete their period tracking apps as the information could be used against that person in court if they were charged with a crime. So that's that's sort of interesting. And we've seen this actually uh, in other areas, right, where it's possible for a company to get a subpoena, uh, to be subpoenaed or to get a court order to turn over information they have on their customers. So valid point, right? I, I get this. And I'm interested to see, now that we've said this, and I'm sure other people have given this feedback to Disney, whether that question and similar questions will be on future surveys. It's such a tough space right now because you just get the sense from Disney, as we've talked about on previous shows, you know, to the effect of they're just trying to keep their head down. They're trying to get the other side of the midterms. Yeah. But the very fact that they're, they're doing this sort of checking to the effect of, okay, where are we right now? How do people feel about the Disney company? And at the same time, yeah. do you know, have Jillian talk about, you know, the, the level of mistrust that she has for, for major media corporations. Yeah. It's a weird time right now, Len. And you know, I think in this case, Jillian is saying it's not necessarily Disney that she doesn't mm -hmm. trust. It's the fact that a court can compel them to turn over this survey data and nobody knows what it's going to be mm -hmm. used for. And that's that's kind of not no, great. It is not. It is not. So we'll, it'll be interesting to see whether Disney keeps these kinds of questions in their survey, because I doubt that us doing this on the podcast is the first time they've heard this concern. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I agree. So going back to our to our survey from mm -hmm. Andrew, right? So he, uh, we talked about the uh, question he got about whether Disney 
uh, world is a brand that you can trust to do what's right. The next question is a preview of, or basically a summary of the difference between Genie and Genie Plus. Disney Genie is a complimentary service within the My Disney Experience app and so on. And then uh, there's a Genie Plus option for $15 per ticket per day, et cetera, et cetera. So there's two questions that I think are interesting in here. Regardless of your interest in visiting the Walt Disney World Resort in Florida, how appealing is the concept of the Disney Genie service to you? And let me say, Jim, spending half a billion dollars to build a service and then asking whether there's interest in it, uh, maybe putting the cart before the horse. So the five options are extremely appealing, somewhat appealing, neither appealing nor unappealing, somewhat unappealing, and extremely unappealing. The next question is, uh, again, regardless of your interest in visiting Walt Disney World, please indicate how strongly you agree or disagree with each of the following statements about the Disney Genie service. All right, so not Genie Plus, mm-hmm. Genie, right? So I fully understand what this service provides. And in this case, Andrew said, I strongly agree that I understand it. I'd be interested in using the Genie service on my next trip to Walt Disney World. And then there was a somewhat agreement Mm -hmm. there. It will provide recommendations to enhance my experience in Walt Disney World. And God love you, Andrew. You put, I strongly disagree. (laughs) We've talked about this before, right? The app is there to distribute guests around the park especially to attractions that are less popular and then they wouldn't normally visit. It will provide a personalized itinerary for my visit to Walt Disney World. Andrew says he strongly disagrees. And again, we've seen this before, right? Because in the Genie app, you can say things like, I want to visit Splash Mm -hmm. Mountain, but the itinerary that you get does not include Splash Mountain, right? So it's not really a personalized itinerary Mm -hmm. if it doesn't include the things that you want to do. This makes me more interested in visiting Walt Disney World. And Andrew gave that a somewhat Mm -hmm. disagree instead of a strongly disagree. The extra cost of Genie Plus would be well worth it, and uh, Andrew was neutral on that. The Disney Genie service will make planning easier. That was a strong disagree as well. It will allow me to reserve a spot in a virtual queue for an attraction. That's, uh, Andrew said he strongly uh, strongly agrees with that, but I don't think that's actually mm-hmm. a function. And then it would make a trip to Walt Disney World less stressful, and got a strong disagree there as well. And I got to say, you know, I'm I, I'm including the survey because I yeah, first time mm-hmm. we've seen it. And I, you know, we're, we're laughing about Andrew's responses, but I would say that in general, Andrew's responses track almost exactly with what we're hearing from people who use this over and over again every day, right? We're getting, and this is one email from one person. I get the same email every, every day from, you know, 10 different people. Wow. The question is, are they going to listen? Speaking of uh, listening, I know we've, uh, we've talked a lot on the show about recent ride mm-hmm. downtime and how it's an issue. Our friend Ken sent in a survey he got after an Epcot visit showing that Disney is also interested in how ride downtime is affecting the guest experience. So here's a question that uh, Ken got in his survey. Which of the following best describes your experience riding Guardians of the Galaxy Cosmic Rewind on the date he visited? And there are five options. I rode it successfully without issues. I rode it successfully, but some of the show elements did not appear to be working. (coughs) Splash Mountain. (coughs) I rode it successfully, but the ride was interrupted while we were on it. I rode it successfully, but the ride was interrupted while we were on it. And some show elements did not appear to be working. And then we were evacuated and had to exit the ride before it was over. (laughs) So we've seen these like sporadically, but I don't think, Jim, it's a coincidence that we're seeing these kinds of questions with Epcot, given that uh, Epcot has relatively few rides compared to the Magic Kingdom. And those rides tend to be about as unreliable as anything else in Walt Disney World. So things like Test Track, mm-hmm. Remy, Frozen, uh, Spaceship Earth, for example, are down, you know, if not 
45 minutes to an hour a day than more. I love the collecting data about this, especially. I mean, we're we're not even three months into opening at this point, right? No, but if you know, and Guardian is actually one of the more reliable mm-hmm. rides. Like I think before it opened, when we were tracking, you know, pre-opening test downtime, it was more reliable than mm-hmm. Test Track, and it was more reliable than Remy. So yeah, I think overall it's doing not bad. Okay. Wow. All right, time for one quick mm-hmm. listener question. Uh, we've already done Jillian's. Here's one from Connor, who says, uh, "Hey Jim and Len, uh, I saw Bob Chapek's comments at the Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. conference regarding how the park reservation system is the quote backbone of Disney's wider yield management system." I got to thinking that this is a topic I'd love for you with maybe the help of an MBA or two to discuss on the show. How specifically does knowing how many people will be in the park on a particular day translate to maximum revenue? Just so you don't have to open the Tomorrowland Terrace or staff extra crowd control cast members if you know exactly how many people will be in the park. Disney management obviously loves the park reservation system, but what exactly does it allow them to see that makes it so appealing? And more importantly, how does it affect the bottom line and how does it create a better guest experience? All right, so let's answer the last question mm-hmm. first. So there are 365 days in a mm-hmm. year, Jim. Of those 365 days, I am told by someone at Disney that there are probably five days out of a year in which not getting a reservation would help the guest. And it would help the guest in this way. Prior to the park reservation system, if you wanted to visit the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. on Christmas, you would have to make a trip all the way over to the Magic Kingdom mm-hmm. to park and only to be told that you uh, can't get in the park once you've made the trip. Now, if you can't get a reservation, you can at least stay home without having made the trip. So there are five days out of the year, typically the week between Christmas mm-hmm. and New Year, maybe a couple of days around Easter, where people who want to visit the Magic Kingdom who can't get a reservation now don't have to leave the comfort of their own home to figure that out. But the other 360 days mm-hmm. a year, Jim, the <laughs> uh, park reservation system is entirely for the benefit of the Walt Disney Company, and it definitely helps with mm-hmm. staffing. And that's why it's, I don't think it's ever going away. The interesting thing for me there is Disney knows that no guest in the last three years has asked for the reservation system to be put in place, right? No one wants a reservation system. I think overall people would rather take their chances than having to deal with the day-to-day rigmarole of, of making park reservations. They must be making so much money, so much saving, so much money in staffing and things like that that they're willing to accept that bucket of money in return for lower guest satisfaction scores. The fact that we have seen a few surveys bubble up at Universal sort of testing the waters for their yeah. own park reservation system, which I really yeah. hope doesn't happen. But there are other people in the industry who are paying attention to this, who are paying attention to yeah. these savings. And and arguing in-house, is it worth the trade-off? The lower yeah. guest satisfaction ratings, but on the other hand, it's so much easier to staff. And I still worry about the conversations that are happening after people get home. Oh, yeah. I mean, I will say this, that... Uh, you know, Disney's implemented the park reservation system and they've changed. They've gotten rid of Magical Express and they've gotten rid of Fast Plus Plus the, uh, you know, for Genie Plus and now it costs mm-hmm. money. I will say that just like the uh, the emails that we get about Genie Plus mm-hmm. every day, I get emails every day from people saying, look, I had a great time, but all of this new new stuff was such a hassle that I don't know when I'm coming back. Yeah. And it's great, you know, for short-term mm-hmm. revenue. People came in, they spent the extra 15 or you know, $15 per person or whatever on Genie Plus. And for, you know, for Bob Chapek, who just got a three-year mm-hmm. contract, you know, it's probably fine for the next yeah. couple of years. Yeah. Five years from now, are people going to be like, you know what, I just I don't want to go through that again? Or will they, will they say, you know what, in retrospect, it wasn't mm-hmm. that bad? 
And so many people are complaining about it now that I don't see how this doesn't affect them long term. Maybe they're, they're just thinking, look, we're going to run this for a few years, make as much money as we can. And then we'll, you know, if it if uh, num- the number of visitors or their spending starts to decline, then we'll change. Maybe that's it. That's always an interesting card to keep in your back pocket. I just remember that there evidently that there's a story that told of Walt, you know, to the effect of somebody suggesting that we don't have to spend that money. That's an extra dime per person. And so we're spending an extra dime per person. But if we lose them, we'll have to spend dollars to get them back. And I, I Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, <laughs> yeah, I it just yeah. I, I wonder what it's going to cost, you know, when you live in a company, you know, again, Disney's a company these days. It's like, well, how are we doing? And it's like, well, what's the stock price at? Yeah, that's really yeah, what they look at. It's yeah. sort of like, OK, as long as the investment community is, is behind us, we're fine. But the problem is that when suddenly the investment community isn't behind you, what do you do? Yeah. Disney's an ocean liner. You can't make turns quickly when you... Yeah, you know. yeah not exactly nimble. Yeah. I mean, the uh, the analogy that I give for this is uh, everything was going great on Thelma and Louise's road trip <laughs> until, the, until the last five minutes, <laughs> you know? There we go. <laughs> and I'm just yeah. saying, you know, there, and then, then there was no time to turn around. Yeah. The, the staffing thing that was interesting, and so let me just give a perspective here because I have some, some numbers. So I used to work at American mm-hmm. Express ran a call center at American Express. And so one of the things that they were always interested in was having the right number of people in seats to answer mm-hmm. the phone based on call volume. So, you know, for example, if it was some random Tuesday in September, you maybe didn't need that many people. But, you know, for the day after Thanksgiving, you know, Black Friday, when people were super interested in using their their American Express cards, you wanted to have more people seated in the call center. And so the people who ran the call center would have to do staffing forecasts. How many people do we think we're going to need in seats to answer phones on any given day for the next month based on historical call volumes and you know recent trends and stuff like that? And for American Express, the goal was to be within plus two or three mm. percent. So if you needed, if you thought you needed a hundred people and you ended up needing anywhere from ninety-seven to hundred and three people, probably okay, right? But if you forecasted a hundred and you only needed 80, that was actually really bad. And it got, obviously, it was also worse if you forecasted 100 and you needed 120, right? So American Express's goal was plus or minus a couple percent. And I believe that's the industry standard. The last I had heard for Disney staffing, which again, pre-pandemic, mm-hmm. was that when they looked at how much staffing they forecast versus what they actually needed, it was plus or minus 20 or 30%. Really? which means they were either understaffed or overstaffed anywhere from one-fifth to uh, just under one-third of the time. And that is obviously a huge, huge number, right? That's a lot of either unhappy guests waiting in long lines or you're paying a bunch of cast members to stand around and not do uh, very much. So I, I get the need to sort of bring those numbers, those margins mm-hmm. down. But putting this all on the guest is, I'm not sure, the best way to do it. If we're still doing this podcast in five years, it'll be interesting to see what's going on at that point. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We should uh, set up something in our Google calendars for five years from now. There we go. And, and wonder where Mr. Chapek will be at that point. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim continues the story of how Disney converted Norway's Maelstrom ride into Frozen Ever After. Settle up your reindeer and we'll be right back. Now for a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How did it get to be July already? Man, this year is just flying by. It was Memorial Day five minutes ago, and Labor Day is right around the corner. 
So if you're actually going to get in that summer road trip you've been talking about, now's the time to start planning. Of course, if you're really going to hit the road this year, you're going to want to get in that pre-trip check. Run your car by the garage first and make sure that it's actually up for a long trip before you then hit the road. That said, you know, it's always struck me funny that people will take so much better care of their cars than they do their own bodies. I mean, it's not like you can trade that in for a newer model. By the way, if you're looking for ways to be better to your body, to be specific here, to be kinder to your mind, might I suggest BetterHelp. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. More to the point, BetterHelp is much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Look, we're living in especially stressful times, and if you're honestly having trouble handling all that, BetterHelp is here to help. By the way, did I mention that our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash DisneyDish. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash DisneyDish. We thank them for sponsoring today's episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Jim, when we left off, the folks from Norway uh, were in discussions with Disney. Disney came out and said, hey, you know what we're going to do here? Rangers, trolls, and igloos. And Norway was like, no, 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 that's not our country. We're very modern right now. We've got oil rigs and, uh, and oil exploration, and we are a modern developed mm-hmm. country. Disney had gone back to the drawing board and said, okay, we need to redo the ride. And what this thing that was a troll ride uh, eventually became something called Sea Venture, which was the original name of Maelstrom, right? Yeah, for almost two whole months. Two whole months. All right. Two whole months. And we were talking at the top there about Norse Show. That's mm-hmm. the consortium of Norwegian businessmen who Disney convinced to put up $30 million, and that was basically going to be the seed money for the 11th International Pavilion at Epcot. And Disney itself agreed that it would pick up the rest of the cost to finish the pavilion with the understanding that there would, again, be a ride inside of it. And, and Disney initially wanted a cute ride because of the figment plush that was selling. So the notion was, oh, let's do a cute ride. So we exit them through the gift shop and they, they go off and buy trolls. And as Marty Scalar found out, this was not what the North Show folks were interested in. They wanted something that would showcase the modern nation of Norway. But they also told Marty that of the 90,000 square foot 
building that was going to house all of the Norwegian pavilion. They wanted 45,000 square feet of that to be retail and dining. And so, and that half, and that was one (laughs) of these things where it's like, you know, so already Marty's got to go to the guys who are, uh, and go with the punch list again that they gave, you know, we want an oil rig. We want a fjord. We want polar bears and puffins. Wait, 45,000 square feet is an acre. Retail. There we go. Holy cow. Okay. All right. That's a lot. These gentlemen had been promised that the $30 million that they were putting up, they would get back and that there would be some benefit to the the nation of Norway. So Marty's got to go back and and tell these guys, okay, so these things they've given us on the list, we have to put in. And Norway's modern fishing fleet, it's like, okay, how are we going to do that? The Imagineers put their head together, wait a minute, okay, we will make the offload area a modern fishing village. All right, so they'll literally step off into that space. One of the most charming post-ride scenes Disney's ever done. I agree. and But remember, you go straight from that into a theater. Into the travelogue, yeah. And the other part of the punch list, you know, they wanted to show the country's natural beauty. They wanted to show their, their deep and rich history. And so it was like, mm-hmm. well, look, that's a film. If we do that as show scenes, that'll take forever. On the other hand, a film, we can do a montage. It'll be great. Yeah, seven-minute show. We can do yeah, three-second clips of people waving Norwegian flags. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The whole point to do this was benefiting Norwegian tourism. So it's like, mm-hmm. tell you what, as soon as the automatic doors open and people spill out of the theater, the very first thing they see is a booth offering information about Norwegian tourism. It's like, look, yep. let's just w- work the entire punch list. But here's the thing. In order to do your modern Norwegian shipping or fishing village and your movie and your tourism booth, you are now taking even more show space away from the ride. Right. Because to your point, the way that the film worked, the post-ride film worked, you were actually in a queuing area with the doors closed while the film was running. So you got off the boat and you were actually standing around this little village Mm -hmm. until the theater doors opened. Yep. And that takes space. It did. And the theater took space and the, the booth took space. And, and by the time you get to the, uh, you know, you pass the, the tourism booth, yes, you are fed into, finally fed into the retail space. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the, the retail people were just furious because by then, again, we've talked about how supposedly they have 58 seconds to get you from the ride to the retail space because yeah. that's when your sales resistance builds up. And the very thing you described, we're holding them in the shipping village. And then we show them the movie and then they walk by the booth. So by the time they get in here, they don't want to buy a troll, you know, yeah. and it's just sort of like, Arr. now it becomes a situation where the, the Imagineers are working on the ride itself. And it's like, Marty, we've lost so much space. We're staging scenes because we need, you know, space for the, the boat track, for the boats to go through the building. We mm-hmm. have scenes where we only have five feet between the boat trough and the back wall of the show building. We can't do scenes with depth. It's kind of amazing because, you know, 90,000 square feet, again, two acres. And now we're talking about yeah. <laughs> we don't have the three feet we need or five feet, whatever, <laughs> for for a particular show element. It's kind of amazing how, how quickly uh, space gets tight. Yeah. yeah. So it, it eventually came down to, okay, so what do we do? It's like, all right, let's have a big scene in, in the middle. And so this is our three-headed troll, which 
curses us and sends us backwards. And I remember talking with the Imagineer who fabricated the, do you remember the fiber optic effect, the spell when the troll yeah, cast this? Yeah, with the, uh, like the little dazzling, like starlight twinkles, right? That's it exactly. But, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. needed a giant space in that building because this is the point where the boat is moving from one trough where it goes forward to yeah. another trough where it goes backwards. Yeah. So, all right, you needed that big scene. And then they had decided that we need an exciting climax, which we'll get to in a moment. So what they had to do with all of these scenes that were literally up against the back wall of the building, it's like, okay, so we can't light them to show that they have no depth. So mm -hmm. they, they do this interesting thing. It's the first animatronic attraction where they mostly paint using black light. So it's it's dim, but you can see the figures because they're painted with, with black light paint. And so it's this misdirection. You, you don't realize that the Viking is gesturing to his son, hey, you, all of this is yours, all the way to, to that, that wall there in 3B. <laughs> the, the 18 inches between my hand and the wall. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> all of this is yours. <laughs> there we go. So Disney corporate is like, look, we're putting up the rest of the money for this pavilion. And I, if we're putting up this money, I want you to guarantee me that people are going to come to Epcot and want to ride this thing. So oh, sure. yeah. does it have a thrill element? Then they're looking at the punch list and it's like, well, yeah, they did ask for an oil rig and where are oil rigs in the North Sea which is one of the most turbulent bodies of water in the world and it's like sure. ooh could we do and again, we're back to where we don't have a whole lot of room, but if what if we send them into a darkened room that's in the middle of a storm at sea on the North right. Sea? And it's like, oh, we've never done that before. And so they rig up a room where you, again, there are waves crashing uh, and there is, there's water coming down from above. In fact- Wait, they, they mock this up like in Burbank? No, they built it in Orlando land. Oh, I mean, okay. All right. it okay, okay. literally was the initial version of this attraction. In fact, I shared video with you earlier today of, and it tells you a lot about how they were originally going to promote this attraction, that for the opening of the ride at the Norway Pavilion, they brought in Willard Scott, the weatherman, for the Today Show to cut the ribbon. Uh, and in fact, they, Willard was featured in the July 4th, 1988 TV special from Walt Disney World, and they actually showed him cutting the ribbon. And he greets the first boat coming back in, and everybody in the boat is wearing a yellow rain slicker because that was supposed to be one of the options of the attraction. As you were boarding, it's like, oh, would you like a rain slicker? Because you know you get wet oh. on this ride. So this was, I mean, they were they were anticipating that this ride was going to get you as wet as, say, Cully River Rapids used to do during the summer. Like, wet, wet. But you were indoors. And this is why the very first name of this attraction was Sea Venture. The notion was, we're sending you out, you know, to the North Sea. And by the way, you will be in the middle of the storm and you will get wet. They soft opened the entire land at Epcot in May of 88. And okay. right from the get-go, they had guests getting off the ride who were wet and furious. 
Really? Were they wearing the um, wearing the yellow rain jackets, or they're just well, regular guests? That was the thing. the The yellow rain jackets were were an option. It wasn't a question of you they know were pushing on people. Yeah, it just the notion of by the way, you may get wet in this ride, and it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been on the Jungle Cruise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> that elephant never shot at me. All right, and then you know you you ended up in the North Sea, and there was at least one boat. Of people where during the, this early test phase of the attraction, a gentleman fell out in the North Sea, which thankfully was only two and a half feet deep. Yeah, knee deep, right? Yeah. Wow, fell out of the boat from the, how, how big is that drop? The drop is 28 feet. But remember, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a staggered drop that gets you down there. In the end, Disney felt like, okay, Sea Venture is just too tame a name uh, for what we're actually trying to do here. So they actually changed the name of the attraction to Maelstrom. Which conveys uh, rough times at sea. It's it a great does. one word. Yeah, I mean, well, that's yeah. it exactly. By late July, early August of, of 88, they are already dialing down the effects line. Really? What they're finding is, for example, when people do wear the yellow rain slicker. You got to get the right size. You got to put them on. And then yeah. to collect them at the end of the ride. Yeah. yeah. We're not talking about a pair of uh, 3D glasses where you just hand out and go, right? No, that's it exactly. And and then you're already dealing with a ride where even if they're operating at peak efficiency, they're only getting 900 to 1,000 guests per hour through this. Yeah. yeah. So you don't that's, need... That's, I mean, Dumbo at the time, like one one half of Dumbo is seven hundred an hour. Mm -hmm. You're not spending thirty million dollars to get for a thousand people an hour. That's not great. Don't get me wrong. North Show got exactly what they wanted. They saw a, an obvious increase of, in tourism to Norway from from the Americas. Likewise, them insisting on you know half of the the space being used for for dining, retail, and retail. Uh, it did great. The only thing that wasn't doing the business was Ankerhus. Oh, re uh, restaurant uh, Norway's Akershus restaurant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which modeled after Akershus Castle in in Oslo, and it's actually a pretty fair approximation of the architecture. Yeah, but but when it opened, wasn't it like actual traditional oh, it Norwegian was. food, like like smoked herring for breakfast? It was. I, I remember going in there for lunch and walking up to the buffet, and it was literally the line from the producers, many different herring. Yeah, I mean, no, yeah. So I, I, I went, I don't, I don't know the year, but I went with my sister, um, mm -hmm. you know, Linda, my twin sister, mm -hmm. for lunch. And I'm not exaggerating. There had to be four or five different kinds of cold smoked fish. Yeah. On the buffet. And the interesting thing was, like, we would try it because we were adventurous eaters by that point. But mm -hmm. you could tell just by the number of guests who would walk up to that, look at it, turn around and say, you know, find me the, the baked potatoes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, or the French fries or something like that, or the chicken fingers. It's just it was too authentic. I think for uh, for that, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and, and and in fact, the turning point came in January of two thousand five when Ankar stood empty, especially as we we moved from from the eighties into the nineties and the early two thousands. Just yeah. its reputation was now preceding it. It's like, oh, the herring place. It's like, no, I'm yeah. not going there. So they decided, given that they were dealing with hundreds of people who were being turned away. For uh, from Cinderella's royal table at the Magic mm. Kingdom, you know the notion of well, let's try character dining here. Well, let's see what yep, happens. Yep, yeah, and, and and at the time too, there was nothing going on at World Showcase before eleven a.m. when it opened. Right, yeah, so yeah, 
the the ability to do you know a breakfast seating mm-hmm. in World Showcase brings more people to Epcot, and also they have to pay admission to get into the park, there and because go. it's early for breakfast, they're not mm-hmm. going on rides. Yeah. Yeah, even better. Yeah, yeah. So it was a brand new revenue stream. This begins in January 2005. If we jump ahead, they are doing three seatings a day. They are doing breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this is before a certain Snow Queen and her sisters show up, which suddenly really changes Norway from a, ooh, you really want to go to either either that restaurant, it's like, to, ooh, you really want to stand in that six-hour line to get on that ride, which... We'll get to the final part of this story on next week's Disney Dish. You know, the uh, the funny thing about uh, about Icarus Juice uh, was this. I've mentioned you know, I've been you know to the real Oslo, uh, and Oslo is the most expensive city I've ever been to in my life. Not exaggerating. Mm-hmm. I uh, when I was there, I went out for dinner one time and had a hamburger like you would get at Applebee's, mm-hmm. uh, a salad, a small side salad, mm-hmm. uh, and a beer, and that was fifty eight dollars in <sighs> two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. And uh, the interesting thing now is that the modern Disney company has actually caught up with the prices <laughs> in Oslo to where if Akershus wanted to serve mm-hmm. a $58 hamburger, salad, and beer, they could absolutely do so right now. So I think if Akershus comes back, it should just be like, yeah, no, this is what actually happens in Oslo today. And please enjoy our complimentary grabbing of your ankles and shaking. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney Dish show today. Please help support our show and Jimmy Hill Media by subscribing over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Also, you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes. On next week's show, we're going to wrap up this history of Norway's Maelstrom attraction. Also, we've recorded a new Bandcamp exclusive on the Crane Company Bathroom of Tomorrow at Disneyland, which you can get at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, Len, at turnplans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, who will be defending his all-around cowboy title with his horse, Snowball, at the 2022 Nebraska's Big Rodeo, running July 27th through the 30th in beautiful downtown Burwell, Nebraska. While Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.